Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today we're going to discuss minimal stimulation IVF. That has a lot of different terms that we'll get into, but I have a dear friend, uh, Dr. Eric Widra, who's going to be joining me. And uh, this is a, a pretty hot topic in our field because it, it has been around a long time. And there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions of, about its uh, indication, uh, uh, the, its effectiveness, uh, the cost, you know. So what we're going to talk about with uh, with uh, Dr. Widra is uh, uh, who is the best patient for this kind of a stimulation, and uh, just go into more detail about what you can expect from this. So uh, uh, Dr. Widra is the chief medical officer of Shady Grove Fertility, uh, with centers in uh, Washington, Baltimore, Philly, Atlanta, Santiago, Chile, and over down not too far from us in Tampa. Uh, he's the professor and director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Fertility at Georgetown University. Uh, he is also a member of the Resolve Board of Directors and served as uh, chair of the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology Practice Committee, member of the ASRM Practice Committee, examiner for the uh, Division of Reproductive Endocrinology, American Board of OBGYN. Lots of, lots of credentials, accomplishments, um, not which uh, is uh, the least uh, that we went to medical school together. Uh, so we go way back, and uh, we actually presented a paper at the local uh, American College of OBGYN uh, district meeting. Uh, we were both presenting research papers uh, a million years ago. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction, Mark. Uh, who knew two guys from Jersey would do okay, huh? Yep, yep. It's a long way, a long way from home. And I thank you for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule, Eric, for, for helping uh, educate our patients. Uh, so, uh, first IVF cycle, way back in 1978, the classic Steptoe and Edwards with Louise Brown, that was an unstimulated cycle. And then we went into stimulation uh, to try to get more eggs and more embryos. Uh, but, but before we get too far into the stimulations, how do you define, Eric, what minimal stimulation, micro-stimulation, modified natural cycle, so many different terms, how do you describe this to patients? Yeah, it, it's, it can be a challenge. It's, it's funny, when I, I was on the ASRM practice committee when we developed the, uh, the guideline document for this, and, and we sat around the table arguing about what, is, what it is and what it isn't. Um, it reminds me of the old joke about, you know, what's pornography? I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Um, but um, I, I think that most people agree that a minimal stimulation protocol is one where your goals for eggs are are adjusted downward so that you're trying to um, create an environment where maybe only one to three or four eggs is developing in, in, rather than a conventional stimulation uh, where you're trying to maximize the number of eggs in, in, in most cases. I think the other piece of it is that, so, that um, you are um, – uh, you are using some manipulation of the ovaries as opposed to a natural cycle where there's really 
in its strictest definition, there should be no external uh, manipulation. So what are we looking at? Uh, you know, I've seen, and as you have, the papers in Natural Cycle, and I, I've always been uh, aware of, in poor responders, uh, ironically, the highest dose stimulation does not appear to be any better than a natural cycle, uh, almost in the 10% range. What, uh, do, firstly, do you use natural cycle or minimal stimulation where you are? And, and if you do, what are you quoting patients as a uh, live birth rate? So we, we don't use natural cycle, and, and I, I'm not sure I agree that the, in poor responders, natural cycle success rates are equivalent to stimulated cycles. But I do, but there are several studies that demonstrate that minimal stem cycles have, have comparable success rates to uh, uh, conventional and poor responding patients. And so we do use a, a low dose protocol. And, um, I, you know, I think you got to break it down for patients, right? The, um, the, the first hurdle is, you know, do we get to egg retrieval? You know, do, do you make enough eggs? And, um, and sometimes you can provide pretty good reassurance about that based on their prior treatments or, 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 or um, their lab values. And then I, what we tend to see in our program are age-appropriate pregnancy rates um, if we get embryos. So if you have a 35-year-old who has a very low response to medication and uh, we get a blastocyst, you know, we can expect you know, a pretty significant birth rate from that embryo, probably close to 40%. But there are so many hurdles to getting there for those those patients that you want to be careful not to set that as the expectation. Interesting. So we also know that increasing doses of gonadotropins appear to have an increase in aneuploidy or chromosomally abnormal eggs and, and embryos. So should we be moving toward minimal stimulation or certainly lesser stimulation, not just in the poor responder, but everybody. What are you, what are you thinking about that? I'm, I'm not sure I agree that that's what the literature shows us at this point. I think there, I know there are several publications, and we've presented on this as well, that show increasing uh, pregnancy rates and, and no change in antiploidy with increasing number of eggs. So I, I think that's controversial. Um, Look, uh, uh, to quote a, a colleague, it's not maximal stimulation, it's optimal stimulation. And um, I think that in patients who are normal or good responders, there are huge benefits to a good stimulation, um, not the least of which is having cryopreserved embryos for the future. Yeah, no, there definitely uh, is support for, for increasing aneuploidy. And while it may not be universal, uh, there is definitely concern. The trend, uh, certainly in the UK, is to reduce stimulation. Uh, but the, it begs the question, which you just said, what is optimal stimulation? Uh, and and uh, what would you say is Shady Grove's experience in terms of what would your goal be for the numbers of mature eggs that you'd like to see on patients? Uh, we just hosted a group from the UK to review this specific issue, and um, we presented our internal data, and it showed quite clearly that more eggs means more babies. Uh, we did not see any drop-off, even getting to 25 or 30 eggs in some very good responding patients in, in the outcomes. So um, uh, once again, I think it, 
you've got to work with the the patient or the couple in front of you and try to optimize it. But um, short of taking women who have very high egg supply and overdoing it, uh, I think that, that we want to be vigorous in our stimulations when possible. So uh, you you did obviously pre-implantation genetic testing on all of those patients and you did not see any increase in chromosomal abnormalities in in patients who, who had normal response and even hyper response irrespective of age. Uh, I can't tell you that all of those patients that I just uh, abstracted, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. had, had PGT, but they had live birth. Uh, okay, and, and I got and you. You put Yeah, no, the studies what I was talking about is that they, they looking at the actual embryos. And of course, live birth is, is, is the ultimate uh, metric that we're all concerned, but there, there is concern about increasing gonadotropins and its effects on eggs. Uh, uh, but live birth, of course, is, is huge. Who are, who are you feeling... You know, we're, we're, we are faced on a daily basis uh, across the table for, for some patients who have been struggling, uh, a significant challenge in their journey. So they get a chance to read online. They see about mini-STEM. Uh, who is the patient that you think, uh, in your review in the practice committee, who is the patient that, that you would offer this to if you were going to? I, I think that it's, it's someone who has had a prior poor response to conventional stimulation that is consistent with the rest of their picture. You know, we all see a patient now and then who has an unexpected poor response and then reverts to a, 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 a normal, um, a, a normally progressing cycle later. The patients who have low AMH concentrations, low antrophological counts um, can benefit. And one of the ways I describe it to patients is, listen, this is still an IVF cycle. The idea here is that if we're only going to get two or three eggs with $5,000 worth of medication, and we can get the same two or three eggs with $500 worth of medication. Let's save the money. Let's make it a little less intense in terms of the number of injections and uh, see if we can still get you to your goal. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I'm not clear as to, pardon me, the savings that uh, patients, let me do it again because of the cough. I'm not clear about the savings to patients if they do a minimal stimulation. Obviously, the medication is going to be less, but at least the, the, the records that I review from practices, there's still the monitoring, there's still the blood work. So do you think that, that the, these practices that seem to be, I would say, advertising, if you will, uh, the, the advantages uh, to minimal stimulation or trying to attract patients to that, do you think the cost savings is strictly limited to the to the medications i i agree with you mark in my in my experience and seeing in our own clinic and seeing patients from other places that the savings on a minimal stimulation protocol is primarily on medication um um, and many of the natural cycle charts that i review utilize a fairly significant amount of of, uh visits uh for ultrasound and blood work many of them will use um antagonist medications to prevent early ovulation and even then, 30% of the time, they don't even get an egg. And so, yeah, I, I really think that the savings piece has to be looked at in terms of what are you getting for your, your investment right. of your time and your money. Right, right. Uh, if you're going to offer this kind of treatment for patients, and particularly, uh, you know, uh, in Florida, the insurance coverage is not mandated and patients really, really struggle. I think if you're going to, uh, 
uh, essentially uh, wiggle the carrot uh, to try to attract patients to your program uh, by, by minimal stimulation, which everybody wants to try to be as natural as possible, I think there has to be cost savings across the board. And if they are doing minimal stimulation, they clearly don't need as much monitoring as they would with much more intensive medication. Actually, in our program, we monitor people the same whether doing a minimal stimulation or a conventional protocol. It's individualized. It's based on their follicle sizes and rate of growth. Um, from a financial standpoint, um, we don't bill for services in that way. So patients pay for a treatment cycle in any one of our financial programs, and that so that we, we don't have any any misalignment in terms of why we're doing monitoring. We monitor people when they need to be seen, and we're we're kind of in fact blind to you know, whether they're doing a minimal or, or a conventional stimulation, we see them when, when the follicles tell us they need to be seen. So if, you, if we're doing this minimal stimulation, uh, I'm, getting into, I'm getting to the issue now of a day three versus day five, which is not really the, the, the target of this, of this podcast, but uh, I have seen that in poor responders and, and, uh, or average responders, even the ASRM practice committee looking at day three transfer uh, given the high volume of cycles that you are all doing, uh, are you individualizing that day of transfer? Because you know that there are clinics that will just go to day five on absolutely everybody, and then you get the argument of if it doesn't make it to day five, it wouldn't have made it on day three. Where do you personally stand on that, Eric? Um, our, our policy is we go to blastocysts on, in air quotes, everybody. Now, do we individualize from time to time? Absolutely. But we've, you know, it, it is a nearly impossible study to do to prove uh, this notion that, you know, a, a, a patient with only a couple of day three embryos is better served by transferring them on day three versus waiting till day five. Uh, we had a period of time in our program where the pendulum had swung fairly far in the direction of being very individualistic and, and doing a fair number of day three transfers. And what we found when we looked back at that window of time compared to a more recent window of time where we're doing almost universally day five transfers, that we didn't have any more live births. We had a couple more, we had a few more pregnancies, but the pregnancy loss rate from those day three transfers was higher than it was from the blastocyst transfer. Again, it's not a randomized trial. Um, I think all practices should use their own data uh, judiciously in making decisions, but our decision has been to, to primarily do day five transfer, even if there's a very small number of embryos. That's not to say it's, that's not to say it's right for your practice or right. another practice. I, I, right. I don't think we can say those kinds of broad-based – I don't think we can make those kinds of broad-based statements because right. you can't do the proper trial. But right. in our program, our approach is we do a, a blastocyst transfer in probably 98% of cases. And PGT on everyone or, or, or mostly? Okay. Absolutely not. We we okay. we we run it probably about um, right now. We probably do around thirty-five to forty percent of our cases are used, utilized PGT. Um, we think that below thirty-five, there's probably little benefit. Over thirty-seven, there's probably a benefit, and then you have that that kind of gray zone in there. Right. Yeah. The recent study out of Boston IVF uh, did show that thirty-eight and above there was a, a cost-effective uh, improvement with doing PGT. So interesting, interesting data. I agree with you, less than 35, clearly not. So with a lot of education of patients, 
uh, I'm presuming now that you guys are, are putting a lot of effort into explaining to the patient that you go to day five on virtually everyone, and as a result, you're you're seeing even if there's no transfer, um, obviously disappointment, but not to the point of of patients not understanding what happened. Correct. I, uh, yeah. It, it look. It's. It, it, it requires a real engagement with the patient over why you're doing what you're doing and, and explaining it and and saying what we've learned over time. You know, sometimes it's hard to admit that, yeah, we did it this way and we, we realized it wasn't benefiting people, so we changed. Um, but we do tell them that. We try to be transparent. And um, But, no, we I think we're very engaged with our patients. And uh, most understand that, that that we're trying to make the best decision with them uh, to result in a, in a healthy pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. And I admire you all. You're a very, very large practice, uh, but contributing uh, significantly to our, to our understanding in the medical literature. What do you think, uh, in the remaining moments, Eric, what do you think um, is the next phase, you know, stimulation 2.0? I mean, where, well, we're probably past 2.0, but where, where are we or where do you think we're going? Um, I think the, if I could interject, the, the um, GnRH and oral GnRH antagonist is exciting. That uh, I'm waiting to see the studies on the application to uh, IVF um, in terms of suppressing ovulation. Where do you think we're going? Is that going to be the case now? Do you think we're into oral medications? Uh, what, 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 are you all, what are you seeing in, in talking uh, amongst yourselves and also other countries? It's a great question, and, and I do think we'll be going to oral antagonists. So the antagonist is the drug that prevents premature ovulation, and um, having that be oral would be great. And, I, and from my understanding, I, I, I would expect that medication to be in our toolbox relatively soon. The other thing that I've seen that's kind of interesting is um, people creating um, you know algorithms and programs that are designed to uh, – help us design the optimal stimulation protocol. Um, I consider myself like high-tech and early adopter person, but I still enjoy putting together the protocol and, and thinking of it as part of the art of medicine. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, as those algorithms develop how, how different they are from our, uh, from our uh, judgment and our intuition about how someone might do. Uh, but I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that's, that could be the power of big data here is that, you know, with sufficient numbers of cycles and inputs, you can really say, hey, you know, a patient with X, Y, and Z labs would benefit from, you know, ABC protocol. Yeah, the, the real tailor, uh, tailored stimulation to the patient with, uh, with more data. Yeah, that was the idea. The pharmacies are doing that, or pharmaceuticals uh, in other areas. Uh, but uh, to, to maybe show our age a little bit, are you still doing GnRH agonists uh, for suppression of ovulation? And if so, what percentage of your patients? Oh, our go-to protocol is an antagonist protocol. If we have somebody who's had a dominant follicle or a cohort of eggs that's very uneven and had poor maturity, sometimes we'll revert to an, uh, to an agonist protocol to help synchronize that, that group of eggs. But that's, that's yeah, I, I don't think that's common at all. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I agree. I, I haven't used that. You know, so much has changed uh, with, with stimulation. Uh, it, particularly with the freeze-all, 
even if a patient prematurely ovulates, you can continue the cycle because of the fertility preservation literature showing that you could do random start. So, so much is variable now and so much is accommodating that you almost can you start anybody at any time uh, really with minimal uh, consequences irrespective of, a, of a, a large cyst or a, a premature ovulation. So it's amazing from when you and I train to where we are right now with stimulation. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a real uh, adventure, and, and uh, I'm always very grateful for the, the time I've had in this practice and, to, and the growth it's seen to, to see so much and to, and to kind of have a front row seat for a lot of these changes. It's been really exciting. Yeah, uh, well, we're, we're at the end, and uh, this, this went by very quick. Uh, I, I thank you so much, Eric, for your uh, plethora of information. You're, you're always a, a fund of knowledge, and it's always great to see you. Uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Widger uh, from Shady Grove Fertility, the chief medical officer over there. We've been talking about minimal stimulation IVF, and if you are in the D.C. area, uh, please uh, look up Eric. He's an outstanding physician. I know him for many years, and we're grateful that he was able to take some time out of his day to join us today. Thank you again, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, Please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.